Merry Christmas. <laughs> Good morning, Calvary. And if you don't like think it's Merry Christmas time, well, you can talk to me later. Um, we are so glad you're here today. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for joining us if you're online. If you are online, one thing I would encourage you, make sure you're involved in a local church. An online service just isn't quite exactly the same. And part of that is because we as the church are supposed to be one. And we've really been talking about what does it look like for us to walk as one, to have one calling, one body, and one direction. And we've used this illustration of the idea of an orchestra and the reality that we are all supposed to pick up our instrument and play our part. And, and the fact that ultimately what we're doing is we're giving our life as a living act of worship. So the music that God hears is our life lived out as we play the vessels He's given us, the instruments of our bodies lived out and according to what he wants us to be and do. Now, we talked about last week how this is a, a struggle because unlike many orchestras, we're constantly picking up new players, right? We're picking up new people who have just given their life to Christ, and we actually had someone baptized in the last service. It was a beautiful, beautiful testimony. But they aren't going to be as experienced and far along with their ability as some of us who've been following Christ for a long time. So how do we wrestle with that? And this, so we called about the idea of sanctification, the not yet arrived mentality. The one day, but not yet, is the way we described it. And that ultimately, this life is us learning to hone our eternal worship aspect, which will be from now into eternity in heaven. So we challenge you, do your part. Because you can't play your life. You can't live your life out as an instrument of worship like you're supposed to if you only practice one hour a week. You have to really give your life over to Christ. And so we challenged you last week, man, get excited about what God's doing. Get focused. See where you're going. And this week we're talking about avoiding the distraction and how to maintain our focus. Because very likely when you left the service last week, even if you were excited, you may have walked in and thought, oh, I'm going to do this. And then World War III broke out in the car on the way home. Or I don't know, Thanksgiving happened and like a lot of people showed up. Or you showed up at a lot of people's houses and somebody did make the green bean casserole right, right? Which, pet peeve, I don't like green bean casserole. Why put anything to green beans? Keep your food separate, people. But that's another story. You, like, you can like green bean casserole. That's fine with me. Just don't make me eat it. Um, the other part of that is there's life going on. There's distractions. There's things that cause us to slip away. So how in the midst of the distractions do we keep our focus? Ephesians chapter 5. We're continuing on through the one chapter. In Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Now, if you've been around here very long at all, in fact, the last few weeks, I've even told you, when you see the word therefore, see what it is? See what it is therefore. So he tells us he's talked in the previous chapter about the idea of forgiving one another just as Christ has forgiven you. So when he's calling us to imitate him, that's what he's modeling. He's saying, in your character, in your posture, in your demeanor, imitate how Christ did what Christ did for you, who gave himself up. But do you notice right there, it says, therefore be imitators of God. Why didn't it say the imitator of Christ? 
I'm going to chase a little speculative rabbit here for a second, if I can, because I think this is an important point. When I say a speculative theology, that means that there's room for disagreement. It's exactly as it sounds. But here's what most commentators think about this passage, why he said, therefore, imitate God instead of imitating Jesus. Jesus is God, right? But have you ever heard the saying, WWJD, what would Jesus do, right? And a lot of times we buy into that. By the way, it shouldn't be what would Jesus doing. It should be what is Jesus doing because he ain't dead. He's still alive. Amen. And so as you think about that, why is he not asking us to imitate Christ? I think the speculative part is what they're saying is Jesus was fully human and fully God. But the people who would have heard this at times, if he had said imitate Jesus, would have probably put too much emphasis on his humanity. And what he's actually calling us to is in an invitation to the imitation of the divine. Let that sink in. God, the creator of this universe, the God who gave you the number of fingerprints, or the design of your fingerprints, who gave you the very breath that you're breathing right now, the God who can speak and create weather, the God who created every planet in our solar system and beyond, invites you to imitate Him, to, to be like Him. Why don't we do this, and why don't we do this well? Growing up, I, I played golf. Some of you may have heard me say this. I was actually an All-American at Howard Payne University, academic. And so this idea, academic, if you didn't hear that part. Um, I was an academic All-American. I was horrible at golf, but that's another story. And, and when I learned to play golf in, in high school, and I'd been playing my whole life, but when I really learned to play in high school, my golf coach looked at me after I scored a 141 in my first tournament, which is terrible. Think of scoring three points in a basketball game. That's the equivalent of scoring a 141 in golf, Okay. And um, my golf coach looked at me and he goes, oh, your dad taught you how to play, didn't he? I was like, no, I just watched my dad. He goes, oh, that's even worse. Right? And so here's the reality. My dad grew up in a, in a poorish family. They didn't have, a lot of times they would have beans and rice for dinner. They, hey, my dad never had a golf lesson. But when they did scrape enough money, they'd go play golf. That was kind of like their family fun, Right? And as he grew up, he, he kept playing, and it was an, an entertainment and a joy for him. He wasn't going to make this his profession or his livelihood. It was just a recreational activity. So honestly, he didn't have to be that good as long as he enjoyed it, right? He wasn't planning on playing for a high school or college team. Now, an interesting thing happened as he grew up. Once he was an adult, he chose not to get lessons because he was a ministry music and still didn't have a lot of money, and that would have just not been the right thing to do. So instead of spending the money on lessons, he went and played golf because once again it was recreation. And occasionally he would take me out. And so I would learn by watching him. Now here's the problem. My dad swing, and he's probably going to watch this later, Dad, I love you, and your swing is much better now. But it was not good back then. He had what they called a banana slice. It's where the ball starts this way and then goes straight to the right. And so he would have to aim out of bounds to the left to get in the fairway for quite a while. But if you don't know anything about golf, just those of you who cared about the orchestra this week are bored this week and vice versa, okay? So that's, the, I, that's how I learned. And so my golf coach was like, this is bad. But I think this is what happens in the church a lot. Our only idea of how to imitate God is by not actually looking to God, but by our parents who even though they've given their best, may not have lived the best life or had the best swing. Their imperfection, they fall short. 
Or maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, or maybe it was a pastor, or maybe it was a great aunt who showed you what it meant to pray, or, or maybe it's the people in this room. The only examples of what you've really known how to follow Christ is by looking at imperfect people. People are imperfect. When God asks us to imitate him, he doesn't say, imitate your pastor. Why? Because I'm not perfect. Part of the way I live out my holy pursuit of God, part of the way I play my vessel of my body as a worship act to God is not always harmonious with what God actually scripted for it to live. So God says, yeah, we need each other. And yes, absolutely, kids should look up to their parents. But we also need to understand parents aren't going to do it right. The ultimate example of imitation comes by looking at God himself. So if you want to not get distracted by the things of this world, you have to make sure that you are plugged into the source, God, and allow Him to change you. And, and ultimately, when you see what God is asking us, inviting us to imitate, when we look at Him so we don't get distracted, we see it results in us walking in love, and that love is measured out as Christ sacrificed Himself and poured Himself out as a fragrant offering to God. So what does it look like to imitate God? You see, in imitating God, we are not called to live a life of moralistic perfection, but one of a posture of learning. How to become more like God. It's not about how good am I. It's not uh, living a life of, of being good doesn't save me. But the measure of how well we are living out our imitation of God will translate to a life lived out in sacrifice, service, and in love. The love he talks about that he's in calling us to is to live a sacrificial love. Now, this is interesting. And we think about what, what does that really mean? And how do we translate this into human life? Okay? In the same book, Ephesians, the Bible challenges husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her, <laughs> being willing to die for her. Sacrificial love. So what is sacrifice? Sacrifice is the destruction of one thing for the benefit of another. Sacrifice is the destruction of one thing for the benefit of another. So in other words, it's not just giving part of you. It's destroying something. In the Old Testament, what they did is they sacrificed an animal to foreshadow the coming of what Jesus would be. When he sacrificed himself, his body was destroyed. His blood was poured out for the benefit of us so that we might live in abundance and walk with him. So when God asks us to follow him, he's asking us to live a sacrificial love-driven life. What is the last thing you sacrifice for the benefit of the gospel? I put a little money in the offering plate. Great. Do you miss it? Because if not, it's not really a sacrifice. It's a gift. I sacrifice time. Okay. Do you miss it? There are good things that we are called to sacrifice. We're even going to come back to that in a minute. But do you realize that there's part of what we're called to do is to sacrifice elements of our life that are not holy for the benefit of the gospel? What does that mean? The baptism we did earlier. When we baptize someone, what we are doing is we are symbolizing that we are 
dying to our old self and being raised to a new life. In other words, there is death. There is sacrifice to the way I used to live. And so what God asks us to do is to be raised to a new life. In order to be raised to a new life, you have to put to death some things of your old life. So let me ask you this question. In your life, and I'm going to give you a moment of pause. I want this to sink in. I want this to resonate. If there's one thing today I want you to think about and dwell on, this is it. What have you sacrificed for the cause of the gospel? I'll go another step. Are there habits of sin in your life that you have seen die because of the power of the resurrection of the newness of Christ in you? Dana, what does that mean? Well, you ever go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting? Don't raise your hand. You wouldn't. But if you ever go to Alcoholics Anonymous meeting or a CR meeting, what they would tell you is, an Alcoholics Anonymous specifically, are you an alcoholic? And every single person would say yes that was there. Why? Because once you are an alcoholic, you're an alcoholic for the rest of your life. They would never say, I, they're saying, like you might say, I'm a recovering alcoholic, but you are an alcoholic for life. And once you give into that nature, you are that for the rest of your life. But what Christ asks us to do is to be willing to sacrifice, to lay that over and give that over so that that habit doesn't control us. So the reason alcoholics realize that it's a problem, the abuse of alcohol consumption is because that alcohol consumption becomes the preeminent theme of their life, and it makes them make poor decisions, and they no longer care about what everybody else is doing, and so they end up living their life, and it starts to destroy their life. The habit of what they're doing destroys the way they are called to live. Now, we get that for that one element, but there are habits in our own life that we are called to sacrifice. Anger. Worry. Guilt. In fact, let me, let me put it to you this way. What is it in your life that when you're growing up, as you've grown up, if you've had kids, or if you're blessed with kids someday, that your kids would be able to look at you and go, I remember when mom used to be, but she no longer is. I remember when dad used to, but God has done something in his life. When was the last time you had a spouse go, boy, you used to be in this, but now you're not? When was the last time you had a friend look at you and challenge you and say, this was a thing that was controlling your life, but it has now died? And I see Christ doing some miraculous work in you. Now, if you're chasing that around in your mind, and you can't think of a single thing that God has helped you conquer, can I offer something to you? You may have never really followed Christ. Because if part of you never died, then there's been nothing to be resurrected. What you do as a follower of Jesus is you realize, I want to give all of me and allow Christ to resurrect him. If sacrifice is the destruction of one thing, what has been destroyed in you? This is why Paul picks up the words in 3, 5. He says, but sexual immorality, or 5.3, excuse me, and any impurity or greed should not ever be heard among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. Thanksgiving week, after all. Why not? 
For know and recognize this, every sexual, immoral, or impure, or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Uh-oh. Daniel, what's this about? Because this is a list, and what if I've done some of those things? Does that mean I'm not a follower of Jesus? I mean, do I have to earn my salvation? Because this sounds like I have to earn my salvation. This sounds like I have to be perfect. But I thought in Ephesians chapter 2, which is the same book, we're in Ephesians 5, in Ephesians chapter 2, didn't he say, for by grace you were saved through faith? I like that one. Not of works. I like that. I like to be saved by grace because I need grace. You need grace. I need grace. We all need grace. Woo! How is this reconciling the idea that he says you can't be like this and that yet we're saved by grace. It's the understanding of what this really looks like. It's saying in order to really understand what it looks like to receive grace, you have to understand what it's looked like to follow God. And when you follow God, the natural desire of your heart should be, this is no longer a sacrifice, but something I willfully give up for the glory of Christ. What has died in your life. If you can't name something, you probably need to justify how you're living your life by giving it over more to Christ. What needs to die? What would it look like for your kids, for those of you who have kids, someday to go, Dad used to be this way. What would it look like for us to embrace truly the calling of living for Christ. Now, hopefully there's some habit sins that are in your life that God is dealing with even now. And what he's really saying here is you're not necessarily going to be perfect, but it says who is an idolater? Someone who places their ways above God's ways will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the mindset of, yeah, God says it, I don't care. I think he's wrong. Right? Like that 14-year-old, oh, old man's wrong. What does he know? Well, he's God. Right? And so this understanding of what it's saying, it's okay, I'm going to allow us to do that. I'm going to come to the place, and I'm going to start living for myself. And, and this is a great thing when we start learning the habit of sacrifice. Now, here's the danger that happens when we start learning how to sacrifice. Sacrifice itself can make us vulnerable to attack. Why? Because sacrifice itself can become an idol. In fact, sacrificial living without focus will make us more vulnerable to attack. Have you ever gone around and lived to your list? It's like the mom who never sleeps, and then she wonders why she's always angry, right? Get some sleep. You'll be a better mom. It's like the, the family who never stops because they're always working. And, and so if you're a, a fighter, it, you, you tend to, this might be consuming yourself with busyness. Why? Because fighters tend to consume themselves with busyness. To stay busy all the time, it can, it's just a coping mechanism. I don't know why those things tend to match up, but they do. Flighters, hello, you're my people. Don't raise your hand because you don't want to anyways. You tend to handle it by hiding away, by wanting to be by yourself. And that's a dangerous sign. So if you're always fighting or you're always flighting, it's probably a danger. If you're always busy or you're always checking out by watching Netflix and recovering, right? Those things themselves can become idols. And, and, and they can seem like a healthy place, but what you're really doing is you're feeding a false narrative within you that says, get what you want instead of saying, I was made to worship God. 
I was made on Saturdays to worship God. But it's Saturday. You were made to worship God on Saturday. But what about Sabbath? That's what Sabbath rest is, worshiping God. I would even go so far as to say there are good things that can become idols that may need to be sacrificed. Want an example? Your kids. You want me to sacrifice my kids? No. I want you to realize that if your kids are your priority and it's keeping you from walking with God, that is wrong. But they have to be in all these clubs. No, they don't. They have to be in all these activities. No, they don't. But if they're not busy, you can talk to them about God. Hello. What about Christmas? How could Christmas be an idol? Some of you are already, you hate Christmas because of what it did to your family growing up. Anybody want to testify? The drama, the angst, the relatives, the gifts, like who's going to give, oh, what if we don't get a good enough gifts? And this joyous occasion ends up becoming a drama-filled, instead of realizing it's not really about the gifts you give or receive, it's about the one that we ultimately received, his name is Jesus. And we want to have a perfect Christmas and that perfectionism itself can be an idol and rob us from the joy of walking with Christ. What about the idea of I want to be married someday can be an idol. A natural calling that can be good and holy can become an idol. And ultimately God may want you to be married and he may not. But be okay pursuing God first because the best spouse you will ever be is the one who's madly in love with Christ. And so that will guard you from keeping focused on him instead of marrying the biggest loser that comes across the, the road because he has a pulse and he offered me a ring. Okay, I'm really crossing some lines here. <laughs> and I think ultimately what we're trying to do is come to the place where we say, okay, God, are you my all? What needs to die so that Christ can be resurrected in your life? An idolater is one who maintains focus on the things that take us away from God's presence. And that's what we should be about. So here's some other uh, measures, some cautions. Ephesians 5, 6-14 it says this, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments. For God's wrath is coming out on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. In other words, don't be distracted by other people. For you once, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Who is the light? Jesus. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Pursue the things of God, right? But test to make sure it's actually as good as you think it is. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful to even mention what is done by them in secret. Everything is exposed by the light is made visible. That's what Jesus is showing. Jesus will show you what is good. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it says, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So let me close with a few cautions this morning that this gives us about being distracted. First of all, fear the Lord, verse 6. For God's wrath is coming. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know what happens anytime someone encounters the presence of God? Your first reaction when you encounter the presence of God, and one day every single one of us will be, oh no, I'm about to be dead. I'm undone. Why? Because you're going to know you're not holy. 
But for those who have a relationship with Jesus, who have a posture, Jesus will stand before us. And so what we're trying to do is the fear of missing out on God's presence should rob us, should allow us, not rob us, should allow us to seek him because then he will pick us up and to walk with him. Second, discern who influences you. God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners. So if I'm not perfect and you're not perfect, how do we know we should walk with them? Let me put it to you like this one. If someone knowingly stays in the dark, we are not to be united with them. In other words, if someone sits there and goes, I know I'm supposed to be a follower of Jesus, but I just don't care. You can love them. You can pray for them. But you aren't to be united with them. You aren't. Don't marry them. Don't date them. Don't let them be the influence in you because they're not walking with God. Love them. Pray for them. Don't unite with them. Why? Because they're playing a song that's different than worship. And it won't sound good. Third, stay vigilant by staying in the light. <laughs> what does that look like? I'm going to give you a, a, a time-old test to how to stay in the light. So every grandfather in the room is about to get excited. I'm going to give you what we call the newspaper test. Now, a newspaper, for those in the room who don't know what that is, is a piece of black and white paper that used to be delivered to your parents' and grandparents' house on Sunday mornings. And if they couldn't afford it, they would usually steal it off your parents' porch, your neighbor's porch. That was bad, too, but they would do it, okay? And so then what they would do is they would read this in the front page of the newspaper, not the front page of the sporting page, kids. The front page of the newspaper is the bold headline that stands out. So here's what I would ask you. Here's the old ads. Let's translate this to modern days, modern days. It's the front page of the internet source you click on for news. I'm not about to give you one because I don't want those angry emails, right? As about the front page of that newspaper source or online source comes with the action that you are doing right in that moment, does it embarrass you? Does it point to what God wants you to do? If the front page of the newspaper described how you treated your spouse yesterday, would you be in trouble? If the front page of the newspaper handled how you handled your life over Thanksgiving break, you be in trouble stay in the light do the things that if they are exposed by the light which will eventually be exposed won't embarrass you because everything will eventually be exposed fourth repent when we stray and that goes back to verse 14 when it says get up sleeper and rise from the dead now when we think of the word repent a lot of times we think turn around and we are turning around but what are we turning around from we're turning around from death to life Rise up, O oh sleep. Rise up from your slumber. Rise up, church. If the church in America wants to make a difference, we've got to rise up. We've got to awaken from our slumber. Why? Because we were in the death, but now we've been raised to new life. So here's what this looks like requires you and 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 me to all be willing to sit there and go, God, what do I need to die to? What do I need to look to? And how are you going to change me? So here's our daily training. 
keep an open posture for correction. What? How how does that go with the sermon, keep an open posture for correction? Because one of the biggest warning signs that we are actually not following Christ is when a good friend comes and tells you, hey, have you thought about working on this? And we give them every excuse as to why. Oh, I hate that I said that because I do that far too often, right? Oh, Daniel, do you know you do? But here's why, right? Anybody else? I know I'm angry, but did you see they... I know I'm worrying, but this is, I know I, I have problems, but no buts. Is your posture open to receiving, and even if you don't receive it well right away, because nobody's going to do that perfect all the time, are you willing to come back and listen? Now, there are going to be people who tell you wrong things, right? Like, I can't believe you have red hair. I can't really help that, right? Don't worry about that, but are you discerning? Are you seeking and asking, is this of God? Is this of his nature? Is this of his character? Because if your posture is right, you'll stay focused on Christ and you won't be distracted. Now, I'm going to close with the following. Henry Blackaby has this thing. I've said it once or twice here before. But I believe that, that we as a country could have really good days ahead. But it's going to start when the church wakes up. Here's the hard part. I can't make you wake up. I can't, I can't, I can't make them wake up or them. I can't. Maybe that's why Henry Blackaby says the following. If you want a revival, you don't start by praying for a revival to come to your country. If you want a revival, you don't start by praying for a revival in your state or in your church. If you want a revival, go draw a three-foot circle, stand in the middle of that circle, and pray for God to send out a holy fire into that circle and let it spread. Church, you can do one thing. You can work on you. So today, instead of thinking, who can I send this sermon to? They really need to hear this. Allow God to work in you. What needs to die to allow the Spirit to come up? What is distracting you from his focus? What is keeping you from his presence? That sacrifice won't feel like a sacrifice for long when you replace it with the goodness of who he is. Maybe you feel like these walls are too tall. They're not. Let's let them fall. God, I thank you for all you're doing today. We give you this time. And we ask that you would move in our hearts and our minds today. God, there are some shackles that need to be broken. There is some sin that needs to be given over. And we can't do it on our own. We need you. But God, we thank you that you already gave us the victory. You are our victory. So we trust you. We lean into you. We ask that you move and breathe among us. We ask that you guard us and guide us and protect us. Oh God, would you move even now as we respond to you with our voices. May our lives match the words we're about to sing to you.